Uh, thank you very much for giving me another opportunity to continue this series of presentations. Even though this might be a bit different from the, the presentations I already gave, even though they are all in some ways connected. But this is also a fairly large presentation of 35 slides. So I may just speak more freely without really going through the slides one slide at a time. I may refer to a few slides here and there. We'll see how it goes. But since this is the fourth opportunity I have, I think I can just relax a little bit yeah. with you two. I think the, the other presentations were a bit intense. So I will just give you more or less the background story how I came to address these different topics. And I believe this is a very interesting uh, story in itself because it, there are some lessons to learn. And I think there's a lot of ignorance around. And I'm the very first one to admit that I was totally ignorant of all of that. <laughs> and just step by step, as a matter of fact, over a period of let's say 25, 30 years, I have learned more and more and more about it. And the more I learn about it, the more I realize the little I actually knew when I started out. And really, the little I still know about it, <laughs> even though I, I have done quite a bit of research and, and study and, and ultimately, well, writing about it. I brought one of my books with me. Let me just step over here. Which is actually my doctoral dissertation, which I wrote at a university in London, England, Brunel University, many, many years ago. I started in 1993 and finished it in 1996. And then the university threw a curveball at me. I don't know if you. I think it's an American expression. <laughs> I don't know. A curveball, meaning they um, wanted to have another year's tuition out of me after I paid up all the tuition they initially required of me to pay for three years, and they still wanted to have a fourth year. So they called an external examiner who, wa who espoused the very opposite viewpoint, which I uh, tried to present in this dissertation to make sure that he would disallow me to sit for my oral examination and when I could come back and say, well, if I pay another year's tuition, <laughs> they would allow me to resubmit. And, well, these are just some academic games some universities play and that's just how it, how it ended up. I had to pay another year's tuition just to be able to revise and resubmit. And, and when they said, oh yes, now we will call an examiner who might be sympathetic to your viewpoints <laughs> from the University of, of um, Cambridge. And he was. So, so ultimately, I, I was very glad that I received my degree. And here is the final result of it. It's nearly 500 pages. I, I told Werner and Ella just at the supper table today, when I spent about 
of it, I, I, I read roughly 600 books and academic articles covering different aspects when I was doing this kind of research. And I did it for three years, a little bit more than three years, full time. And the most I spent was at the university, or, uh, excuse me, was at, at the British Library. And at the time, it was still at the old place in the British Museum. This is where Karl Marx wrote his Das Kapital. <laughs> <laughs> and Lenin wrote some other books. So it was an interesting place to do my research because in some ways it's connected to Marxism and socialism, even though obviously I oppose it. But let's just retrack. What is very important to the Christian faith? What is really important to us as Christians? If we just think about our faith, certain values, certain Christian values which we highly esteem, highly tre uh, treasure, or cherish. Just give me some, some values. What is a very important Christian value? Faith, the word. Faith, the word. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, these are not quite values. If we have a Holy Spirit, we do live out these values. What are some values? <laughs> But I mean, pardon me? <laughs> you speak all together, I don't... Honesty. I, honesty, yes, thank you. Okay, honesty, this is a very good value, Christian value. What else? Give me two more. Reliability. Reliability, yes, and one more. <laughs> what? <laughs> you. <laughs> It's a very important Christian value. I totally agree. <laughs> Faithfulness, yes. Did I hear truth? Did I hear truth? Someone, I believe someone said truth. Well, that's the bullseye almost. Yeah. Bullseye, truth, yes. And obviously there is a wonderful Bible verse in the Gospel of John, which probably every one of you knows by heart. John 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. So the way, he shows us how we can get to back to God and truth and life. So yes, uh, truth is very, very important to us. And obviously, Pontius Pilate Ask Jesus what is truth, right? Ultimately, if you understand, if, you under, if we get the right Christian understanding in regards to truth, we have to say, well, Jesus is the personified truth. Whatever he says is true. Right? So this is a very important value. And obviously, we are also commanded to be truthful. Since Jesus is the truth, we need to be truthful with one another. Right? So, let's turn this on its head. If you want to attack a Christian faith, how do you do it? How do you do it most effectively? Well, asking the question is basically answering it already. Yeah. 
Correct. In some ways, perverting truth. Distorting truth. Right? It's a very effective way how you can attack the Christian faith. Because we highly esteem truthfulness. Jesus being the truth. Would you agree? And that is exactly how it's been done. And I'll show you how. Now, let me once again preface what I just said. I mean, this is just building a certain foundation in regards to what I ultimately want to teach you tonight. There are certain organizations, certain individuals, usually they are politicians, but not necessarily just politicians, they are other individuals who want to control your life. And that is true in America, which is true in Germany, and I suppose this is true in Australia. Right? There are some advertisers. This is their passion in life. They want to control your thinking, your emotions, in order for you to go out and get something which they want to sell you. Be it a car, be it a house, be it some shampoo, toothpaste, new shoes, leather jacket, whatever. It doesn't matter. But they want to get inside your brain in order to do something so that you are motivated to do what they want you to do. Right? And they are called advertisers. And it's a legitimate business. I'm not saying these are bad people. I want to sell something too and I try to convince others that what I have to sell is pretty good for them. But there are some politicians, they also want to get into your brain. Well, what do they sell? Well, they sell maybe a certain policy which you really like. And thus you are motivated to vote for them. Right? Donald Trump in America said, we want to make America great again. And there are lots and lots of other Americans who think this is a really good idea. So, okay, let's go to the booth, voting booth, and vote for Donald Trump. Because I like to be living in a land which is great in some ways or another. America. So, all of us have something to sell in some ways. And we want to try to persuade others that what we have to offer is something good. Once again, I'm not saying this is something bad. We all do it. But there are certain individuals who have motives which are not necessarily good. They want to exploit you for their own selfish reasons. Okay, if I offer something of value to others, well, I actually do them a good service if I get that product or whatever service. If it's really useful to them, I do something good to them. But there are others who, for very selfish reasons, want to exploit you in some ways or another. And their method is the same. They want to get inside your brain and convince you to do something which you might not necessarily want to do 
out of your own personal volition, but somehow they succeed in persuading you to do something which they want you to do. And this is their objective in whatever they do. Now, what are the most effective ways to do it? Let's just be someone like that, with not necessarily pure motives. I want to manipulate the thinking of Pastor Gary to do something for me, which he would not necessarily do on his own volition. How do I do it? Pardon me? Yeah, okay. Yeah, correct. Obviously, it's, it's yes, exactly. So I, I, I convey a certain message to him, propaganda, and usually that's, this is connected with falsehoods in some ways. And it must be false, right? Right? Because I have, my motives are not pure. So I may tell him something, he does it, and then ultimately he realizes, oh, I was fooled. Or he deceived me. Uh, hopefully he will come to that point. But better not to fall for the deception. Right? That is the better way. Be prepared for some of these messages to come along and then to realize, well, these are messages which I don't want to listen to. Right? Self-defense. So, and we all need to learn those mechanisms. Sometimes we fall for some deceptions, but hopefully we learn our lessons and will be prepared to ward off these kinds of false messages. Right? Be it advertisement or be it something else. Be it a politician standing behind a lectern or whatever behind a TV camera and telling you that your life will be so much better if you vo vote for him. Right? In most cases, we know he's just lying. <laughs> right? In America right now, lots of Americans realize they have been lied to by the current president because he's flip-flopping almost on every single issue he promised and now he's doing the very opposite. So, what are these messages? What are these ways how we are most effectively be deceived? There are, there are two, pardon me? Partial truth. Yeah, partial truth. There are, there are more than two, but two, two avenues or two methods or two areas of intellectual thought are the most effective. The logic goes into your mind, but emotion is in the process. Yeah. So if you come on those two, you've got it. Correct. How can you speak to the emotions of others? Well, what, are, what kind of emotions are within me which hold on or cling to some aspect of reality the most? Let's just spell it out. Religion. Right? If I have very strong religious convictions, 
someone could actually manipulate me very effectively if he knows about these convictions. Right? There are lots of suicide bombers. Is this a natural thing for a human being to do, to blow himself or herself up, to kill a bunch of people in the process? That's not something which is natural for any of us. Right? But these people do it because they have certain very strong religious convictions. They think they will be in, in paradise after they pushed the button. And that would be so much better than living in this existence. Well, if I would still be alive, I would have some news for them. I have been lied to. I have been deceived. Right? But nonetheless, the person deceiving them knew exactly how to do it. And obviously they are very effective. Or it was a very powerful message which they conveyed so that someone was willing to blow himself up and kill a bunch of other people in the process. So religious convictions. If I have the key to manipulate your religious convictions, I have a lot of power in my hand. Would you agree? Yes. And well, the other one is a bit, um, it's not as intuitive as what I just said about religion. And we can also exchange the term religion for theology. So if you mess with theology, if we look at the Christian context, you can do quite a bit of harm <laughs> if you use that kind of key, that kind of power for some ulterior motive. Right? And this is really what happened over many centuries in regards to liberal theology. These liberal theologians had a very specific aim in mind. Why they messed and use more, f well, casual language. Oh. Why they messed with theology. Right? I'll give you one example. The German Chancellor during the Second German Empire, which uh, was, uh, was a gentleman by the name of Otto von Bismarck. He was fighting against the Catholic Church for political reasons. And I don't go into, I won't go into all the historical aspects. I just pull out the most important points of that illustration. He was fighting against the Catholic Church for political reasons because he wanted to unify with Austria and things like that to have an even larger German empire. How do you fight against the Catholic Church? What is very important to the Catholic Church? How does the Catholic Church justify its, its ecclesiastical power? There is one chapter in one of the Gospels. That's Matthew chapter 16. Right? And in that particular chapter, Jesus, basically I say it in my words, just gives the key to Peter. You can lock the door to heaven, I say it in my words, or you can shut it, right? And based on that particular passage, 
the Pope justifies his claim to power because the first Pope, Peter, was given that kind of authority directly by Jesus and since every Pope claims to be the successor of the original Pope, Peter, he has given, or he, he has the same authority. Right? So, what happens? Or let me rephrase that. The authority of that particular passage originally was based on the claim that the Gospel of Matthew was the very first Gospel. Are you with me so far? So, how can you attack that particular claim to authority of the Roman Catholic Church and specifically the Pope most effectively? Well, here it is. Uh, here's how it's been done or was done. If you claim that another gospel was written before Matthew. Do you get the line of thinking? And that other gospel was called the gospel of Mark. So, Otto von Bismarck went to one theology professor and put him up at the University of Strasbourg, which, which at the time belonged to the German Empire. In Alsace, now it's part of France, but at the time it belonged to Germany. So he set him up at the University of Strasbourg and said to him, make sure that your scientific findings boil down to the fact that Mark was written before Matthew. That's all I want you to do. And lo and behold, that particular theology professor came up with a very ingenious idea called the two-source theory that Mark was written before Matthew. And Matthew got quite a bit of information from the Gospel of Mark. And we call that now liberal theology. How did it come about? Well, there was a political reason behind it. And Otto von Bismarck wanted to take the 40 away from the Catholic Church. That was his motivation. And he used a theology professor to, to do the dirty, I say it, my words, to do, to, to do the dirty work for him. And that fear is still around. We are still battling that kind of lie. And it's, it's a pure lie. Right? Sophiology, yes, it's a very effective means. But the other one is history. It's not as intuitive as my example in regards to theology. But if I explain some of the details to you, <coughs> excuse me, I believe you will agree with me ultimately. And that is perhaps my lesson for tonight. But why do we have to learn that lesson? And as I said, I will go into the details, so just be a little bit patient with me. But why do we need to learn these lessons? Well, I give you some objectives right here. To forewarn believers in Christ of what is transpiring in many churches. Forewarn. Remember, we need to be informed of, what's of what is happening in our churches. Just as a protective mechanism. 
We don't want to be fooled. We don't want to be deceived. To explain the original goals of the ecumenical movement, and this will be my his historical example. Now, I could choose many other examples, but this is just such a perfect example. I'll use it due to the fact that it is a very good example. To retrace the historical and religious roots of a civil religion in Western nations, and that is America, Germany, England, and Australia. So ultimately, yes, I will speak about history, but behind history is a civil religion. So ultimately, I come back to my first argument, theology or religion. Because theology and religion stand behind history. And this is why history is also so effective. Because it derives its power from the theological or religious background. It doesn't stand on its own feet necessarily. At least in, in that particular context where we wanted to manipulate the thinking of other people. To detail the intricacies of a functional state church system in America, obviously I prepared that in America, addressing usually American audiences. So this is the objective. Keep this in mind. That's the objective. This is why certain people want to manipulate your thinking. This is what they want to achieve. They want to set up a state church system. And if I say that in a yeah, in American church or tell it to an American pastor, they usually <laughs> get a bit upset with me. I don't know how it is over here, but Americans don't like the idea of a state church. American pastors are very intent on claiming or at least pretending, as far as I am concerned, that they are totally independent of a state. They can do whatever they like, and a state has no power to prescribe certain actions which they don't like. Right? They, they don't even think in that category of a state church. Well, I, I have some other presentations where I explain in great detail what they actually do. <laughs> and the, re the reality of the matter is, they don't know it. They don't know it. But they actually do. It's not called state church. Obviously, those who want to set up a state church system don't tell them to their face that this is what they have in place or this is what they want to put in place. And they have put it in place. So it's, it's already a, a, a reality. It's not something which will happen in the future. So they don't tell them. That would give it away, right? They are not telling them the truth. They want to deceive. They lie to them. So they say, oh, yes, we don't have it. And let these pastors live along or live, uh, live under the impression that yes, such a system we don't have in America. But if you look a little deeper, they do have that system. So this is the objective. So keep this in mind. So, and that's really the com uh, connecting point, right? In regards to all the previous presentations, I say, well, God wanted to separate these two realms, church and state. 
and over the 20th century, over almost over the entire century, these two realms got pushed together more and more to the point, and this is my argument, to the point that they are overlap already. The system is in place, even though it might be called something different, but this is the reality of the matter. And thus, uh, I see this as a very negative development, and my argument would be to separate the two entities again, right, as much as we can, or not to fall into the same pitfall as most pastors have fallen into in America, and possibly over here too. To describe a unification of all nations under a common political and religious authority of global dimension. That's, that's the even bigger objective. World government, world federation. You have to have a state church system in place in order to set up a world government. Because remember, what, I, what did I say in my very first presentation? What is on top? Religion. Religion is on top, and pol politics is beneath it, right? So if you want to set up a world government, which is politics, you have to have a religious system in place which supports that idea. Understand that argument? So, yes. So, this will give you enough ideas to go by to understand my argument and, and how I got to it. Now, I, I took great pains to explain in this book <laughs> how, uh, who, who the players were initially, and one of the most important politicians at the time, he's long since dead, he died in 1959, was this gentleman here, and hardly anyone recognizes his face. Not even Americans would recognize his face uh, readily. So I don't presume that you do. But his face, uh, or this is the face of John Foster Dulles. D-U-L-L-E-S. John Foster Dulles. And he was the Secretary of State of America under President Eisenhower, Dwight Eisenhower, until he died in 1959. His brother is also very famous, or became very famous, he's dead, long since dead now too. His name was Alan Dulles, and Alan Dulles was the first director of CIA, Central Intelligence Agency. And they worked hand in hand. So, Alan was in charge of CIA, and his brother John Foster was in charge of the State Department, and they did a lot of mischief. But what is not known about John Foster Dulles is the fact that he was also one of the first leaders of the Ecumenical Movement. And what is the Ecumenical Movement? Why was the ecumenical movement put up or put in place? Tell me. Give me some reasons for it. What is generally known about the ecumenical movement? Unification of what? Of churches. Yeah, correct. 
unifications, unification of churches, correct. So putting in a religious system where all churches in some ways participate. Right? So we are getting very close to this functional state church system right here. Right? Now, based on what I already told you, you should know now or make the connection or come to the conclusion that the ecumenical movement, which was set up to unify the churches, basically uh, setting up a functional state church system worldwide, was done for another purpose. Right? Down here. For this purpose. So, setting up an ecumenical movement was not first and foremost done in order to unify the churches. But the unification of churches had an another purpose. And that other purpose was utterly political. Unifying all the nations. World Federation. And that explains the, the title of my book, Ecumenical Quest for a World Federation. And you can exchange the term World Federation for World Government. So it was a purely political agenda, motivation. And I believe this is why it's so dangerous to have that kind of system in place. Because it becomes utterly political. And the political arena becomes, as we have found out, in, or some, some comments I heard in, in previous presentations, becomes totalitarian. Right? Totalitarian. So some people, ultimately, if, if they will succeed, will be in places of power where they can dictate to you what they want to do. So it's, it's not just persuading you to do something but really commanding you to do something. And if you don't follow through, there will be some penalties meted out to you. And I think in some ways you already feel that kind of development coming upon you. Pastor Gary showed me, uh, just very briefly, a document where the state government, I suppose, here in Melbourne, demands of the church to do certain things. Uh, revising its church constitution. And I don't know all the details, you have to ask Pastor Gary, but he just mentioned it to me in, in passing a few days ago. But that's the kind of development we should be aware of. It all makes sense once you know this story. And this is why it's so important to be informed at least in regards to the main aspects of this kind of story. How did it happen that I got interested in that kind of topic? Well, I went to the University of Aberdeen. I wanted to write my PhD thesis on some aspect or some passage of the book of Revelation in the New Testament department. And I was passed on to a senior lecturer in New Testament studies by the name of Dr. Ruth Edwards. And the first meeting I had with a lady went like this. And Pastor Gary knows already where it's going. <laughs> he's, he's smiling, so he knows where it's going. 
So I had my first meeting with that lady, Dr. Ruth Edwards. And she asked me, well, okay, you want to write your PhD thesis in the New Testament. What is your idea about the Bible? Just tell me what you think about the Bible. Okay, you sit in front of your prospective supervisor in your doctoral studies. What would you say? But I said, it is God's word. It's inerrant in so many words. I'm summarizing what I said. It's inerrant. It's God's word. Yes, there is true prophecy and things like that. Once I was done with my explanation of what I believe the, the Bible is, she looked at me and she said, this is the few she hates the most. <laughs> and she will do whatever is in her power to prevent me from getting my PhD degree in New, Tes in New Testament studies. First meeting. When she said, okay, here's my view in regards to the book of Revelation. It's, I, will, I look at it from an, an idealistic point of view. Meaning, it's just a, the, a metaphorical fight, a struggle, a battle between the principle of good and the principle of evil. They are fighting with each other, these two principles. There's no prophecy whatsoever. There's no reference to anything historical. It's just a meta metaphorical struggle between different principles, principles of good, principles of evil. And she said, well, if I agree to approach my, the study of a book of Revelation from that angle, from that, uh, uh, using that approach, all of the doors will fly open for me. And it's basically guaranteed that I get my degree. She will help me <laughs> get along. <laughs> and she, uh, she probably knew how to do that. I'm pretty sure she knew. Uh, well, I didn't say it, okay? But that thought crossed my mind right away. This is the few I hate the most. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say I didn't say it, but I'm sh uh, that thought crossed my mind right away. <laughs> but I said, well, sorry, I just can't go along. And she said, okay, uh, I will not get my PhD degree. I, all I, the, the, the most I can do is, or the most, the best degree I can get is a master of theology degree. Okay, I'll, I accept that. And she will allow me to write that master thesis based on my presupposition that the Bible is God's word. She will allow me to do that too. So, okay, sounds good. When she said, and she will make my life as miserable <laughs> as she possibly can, too. <laughs> she will make me work like a dog. She used a different word, but that was the intended meaning. She will make my life as miserable as she possibly can. And she kept her word. <laughs> but all of that, well, it was not a pleasant experience. But the Lord has a had a purpose behind that. Because all of a sudden, I was 
confronted with a situation where, which I didn't expect. So I, I paced myself to do what she required me to do. And what she meant by making my life miserable was, uh, you write your thesis based on what the Greek, some Greek church fathers thought about a certain passage in the book of Revelation, Revelation 21 to 10, about the millennial passage, how the Greek church fathers interpreted that particular passage. And you do everything in Greek. Okay? Once you are done with that, you look at certain books written by the Latin church fathers, some of the main Latin church fathers like Augustine, and you do everything in Latin. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> but I walked through, and the, the now the real story starts. I walked through the library of the University of Aberdeen, and all of a sudden, I realized something utterly important, which made, the which made the all the difference in regards to my studies at that university and ever since. I just looked through the book stacks, and I realized there was one shelf. The entire length of the shelf was occupied by only one book, multiple copies of one book. Now, this is rather unusual. And so I was just curious, what kind of book is it? And obviously the conclusion is, if there are multiple copies of just one book, there's one professor who is very keen on making that book a required textbook for his students, right? Why else would there be multiple copies of just one book? So that, that professor, I, I never... <laughs> found out who it was, but there was one professor who thought that particular book was very important. So I looked at it, and by God's grace, due to some previous studies, I recognized it right away. I thought, that is utterly radical. This, this is like, uh, I don't know if it's a good, uh, good example, but it's like you go into a church library and you see one, the length of one shelf uh, full of just one book, Das Kapital, from Karl Marx. Kind of some, something like that, right? It's totally, it was totally radical. I thought, this book um, is so, uh, the, the content of that book is so volatile, so radical, uh, and in some ways, and I totally agree, agreed with the perspective of that book. But finding that book in a library in the part of the United Kingdom, which is called Scotland, remember, everything's Scotland, and for this, this is uh, kind of um, ironic. Now, I won't go into the details of this book and it's because it's immaterial for, the, for my purpose. But just keep in mind, it is a, it's a very radical book. So, the co conclusion I came up with, which I tested, right? You have a, uh, you have a hypothesis. I had an immediate hypothesis, which I tried to test. And then I came to a conclusion. 
My hypothesis was that if I, if I found that particular book in this library, which is a Scottish library, and it was a history book, H.A.P. Taylor, and he was a, a professor of history at Oxford University. I probably will find similar books of the same, same outlook, same persu persuasion in that library. Would you think this is a good hypothesis? I believe it is. It was. So I, I looked around and I couldn't believe my eyes. The whole library was just packed full. <laughs> I mean, packed full with books supporting that particular perspective. So, I did, I, I split my time. I, I did all what Dr. Ruth Edwards did, uh, wanted me to do, and I did it in 50% of the time I was, I had available to do my study. I, obviously, I, I was a full-time student. And the other 50%, I went through the book stacks, pulled out all these wonderful books, and started reading almost non-stop. And then also photocopying. At the time, 90s, that, that was what you did. You photocopied. Your PDFs were next to unknown at the time. So you photocopied. At the end of one year, I had more than 40 folders like, like this. More than 40 folders full of photocopied material out of these books. and, and Ultimately, I ended up in the archives in the basement of the university library. The archives, and I was just looking through all the original documents. There are two different versions of history. Two different versions of history. And this is something most people don't know. One is called new history. The other one is called traditional history. There are some other terms being used for both. But let's just use these terms. And they are terms, they are correct terms. So new history and traditional history. And the situation is almost identical to theology because there are interlinks. And I won't explain all the interlinks, but there are interlinks to theology. We have two versions of theology two main versions, liberal theology and conservative theology. And the same is true for history. You have a liberal version of history, which is called new history, and you have a conservative version of history, which is called traditional history. And they are at loggerheads with each other. Like, liberal theology doesn't get along with conservative theology. New history doesn't go along with traditional history. Right? They are lo at loggerheads. They are almost the extreme opposing positions on either side of the spectrum. Right? You are either in this camp or in this camp. But there's no compromise solution possible between the two pers perspectives. Right? And what you usually would expect to find in a university library, and this is what you find in most university libraries in the entire world, mostly in the Western world, but in, in the entire world would be a correct statement, is you would find history books espousing which 
view of history, new history, the liberal version. This is what you expect to find. And now I was standing in a university library in Aberdeen, Scotland, where I found uh, many of the books, not all of them, but many of the books which espoused the conservative viewpoint of history. And it was utterly surprising. I didn't expect it, but, I, but that was the case. And this is why I spent so much time, well, as I said, ultimately reading about 600 books on the conservative <laughs> perspective, books and uh, academic articles, and Xeroxing them. Spending so much money, <laughs> so I had to work in a gift shop, <laughs> and I divide, diverted some of her funds, <laughs> and she didn't know, <laughs> so I had enough money to spend for the copy machine. <laughs> I confessed 20 years later, but, <laughs> uh, and she said, how much money did you spend? I didn't know about it, <laughs> a lot, but it was worthwhile. So, my point is there are two different versions of history. And it's a general statement, but I believe it's, it's, it's true for most of us. It's certainly true for me. We don't know that there are two. We don't know that we only know one of the two. And the one we know is new history. Now, how did new history come about? There were several professors of history in America at the turn of the century, 19th to 20th century, at a very prestigious university called Columbia University. It's a university in New York City, one of the Ivy League schools, very prestigious. You don't need to remember the names, but I just, uh, I just uh, give you some of the names. James Harvey Robinson. He was the department head of the Department of History at Columbia University at the time. Harry Emerson Barnes. Carl Becker. And Becker was a professor at Cornell University, also a Ivy League school. And the other one was Charles Austin Beard. And he was a his historian at Columbia at the time. And they came up with new history for one purpose and one purpose alone. And James Harvey Robertson, one of his books, put it into writing. So it's not something I came up with on my own. He spilled the beans. He told everyone who cared to know why they came up with new history a liberal version of history. He was a dedicated Marxist, Freudian, and Darwinian. <laughs> All of them were. All of them were. And he said, my life's passion, my, the purpose of my life, I pursue the purpose of my life by using history to attack the Christian faith. And this is why I came up with that kind of new history. To use history as my tool 
And it's a very effective, very powerful tool to fight against the Christian faith as best as I possibly can. And he went on to say, how do we do it? What's the most effective way how we can use history to attack the Christian faith? What is very important to the Christian faith? What is one of the highest value? It's truth. So let's devise a method of historical studies to pervert truth. To change what happened in, in history to almost the very opposite of what actually happened. And use history as propaganda, not as something for us to learn about what actually happened in the past. Can you understand the dynamic, the, the power, if you don't know about it? And if you are only spoon-fed that kind of version and you actually believe it, they, can, they got into your mind and you didn't, you didn't even know it. And they are messing with your mind. They're telling you lies from morning till night, every day, and you actually believe them. And you base, well, the, mo the moment you believe them, you base your behavior on these particular beliefs, convictions. Yes. So the way how you can protect yourself is, uh, first of all, you need to know the other version, traditional history. Now, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books written on this side as well. But no one tells you which books they are. Is, have, have you studied history in, in high school or at the university level? And the professor said, well, we are, there are two versions, and read a few books over here, read a few, few books over here, and then compare. I can guarantee you, and you probably will agree with me, that this has never happened. I'm the very first one who tells you, right? So the very first task you have to do is to sit down on your, well, on your chair, well, as someone who is engaged in that kind of study, and find out the authors on the other side. Find out the publishers on the other side, right? And then also, well, the same on, over here. Because these books are the dangerous books. These books are the ones I want to read and more or less accept. Because this is the conservative perspective. This is the perspective where the authors are actually very keen on telling you the truth. And here are the authors who are very keen on telling you lies. Now they are very, very intelligent. And they are very apt, very skilled in and spoon-feeding you their lies so that you are actually believing them. And they don't necessarily tell outright lies. They mix truth with error. And you have to know the truth and you have to know the error in order to keep them apart. And no one tells you. So there's always a, a kernel, sometimes more than a kernel of truth in, these, in that kind of version as well just to fool you, just to throw you off. And then you also accept the lies. Because you cannot distinguish one from the other. 
And the same thing happens in the churches in regards to theology. You have to know the truth in order to detect the lies. Right? This is why we have the Bible. This is why we study the Bible, because we need to know the truth. And then whatever doesn't match up, obviously that's, that's the deception, or that's the lie. So, I determined in my mind, since I was not allowed to write my doctoral dissertation in New Testament studies, I, I determined in my mind to write my doctoral dissertation at a different university with a purpose of uncovering <laughs> the lies of new history. Right? Because all of a sudden I knew there are these two versions, and no one tells anyone that there are these two versions. One is the lie, one is more or less the truth, not entirely, obviously human, human beings are fallible, so they, they make mistakes, okay, we accept that it's not the Bible, but at least they strive to come up with the truth, and convey the truth to you. Whereas the guys over here, the professors over here, want to mess with your mind by telling you the lies. So attacking new history, is, it's an apologetic project. Understand that? If these new historians attack the Christian faith using history as their instrument, when I attack new history, I defend the Christian faith. Right? Pretty logical. Well, I found a, a professor down in London at Brunel University. Brunel University is a, it's a technical school, <laughs> like MIT in America, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. It's Brunel University. Brunel was an engineer in the 19th century, a very famous one in England. And so I set up a Brunel University as a technical university. And I found one professor who was willing to take me on. And I explained what I was going to do. He said, he has no clue about it. Nothing. All he will do is read my chapters and, and, and correct my spelling mistakes. <laughs> but apart from that, I'm totally on my own. I said, that's fine with me. I don't care about that. Because I knew there was hardly anyone who would be able to help me anyway. So I was on my own anyway. But at least I found one professor who was willing to take me on. And, but he said, well, now, I didn't know, knew, uh, he didn't know anything about it, about new history and all of that. Once I explained to him, he said, well, there's the likelihood that once I did all my research for three years full time, and submit my thesis to the university, but the university would call an external examiner who is a proponent of new history. And the moment he reads my thesis, he would be rather displeased. Because he would know what I was doing with my thesis. He would know, right? Many people wouldn't, but he would, if he's a dedicated proponent of new history. I said, I take the risk. This is what I want to do. Right? I want to attack new history because new history attacks my Christian faith. So for three years I was in, in engaged in doing all the research 
reading all these books, writing nearly 500 pages about it, submitting my thesis to the university, waiting for six months. We had to move to back to the United States. So eventually I received a letter from the university telling me that they had called Professor Kingsley from the University of London, a uh, his history professor at the University of London, to be the external examiner. And he was the foremost proponent of all of England <coughs> of new history. And it didn't take him very long to realize what I was doing with my thesis. He, he wrote cuss words into the margin of my thesis. He was so displeased, so upset, so disgusted with the things I presented in my thesis. And this is the book, right? Right here. Here it is. He wrote cuss words <laughs> into the margin of my thesis and immediately put in his veto. This meant that he would not allow me to sit for my oral examination and the whole thing was over. Because you have to pass your oral examination in order to get your degree. So I wrote a, a letter back to the university stating that he was totally biased. And you know already that story when the university oh yes, we know about that. This is why we called him but if you pay another year's tuition. So, but at that point, I was just so disgusted with all of that. And I wanted to go, go into all the details. I, I, I just stopped and waited for two years. Do, I did many other, uh, I did something completely different, setting up a company and running a company and all of that. But eventually, I, I came back to that. Now, my point is, and I did receive my degree after all, after two years, because they called Professor Brian Stanley from the University of Cambridge, a histo history professor at Cambridge, and he was a traditional historian. And he was highly pleased, highly pleased, and it's, it's putting it mildly. <laughs> he even endorsed the whole book once it was published. The point is, we are all deceived without knowing it. All of us, me included. All of us. So we need to get out of that kind of fantasy world. Now, we think this is reality, right? We turn on the TV, we read the newspapers, and we see the pictures and listen to the reporters and whatever. We watch the history shows. In America, we have a history channel. I don't know if you have this over here, too. And it's blasting new history from morning till night. New history and nothing but new history. I cannot watch that channel because I get so upset. <laughs> because I know the other side of the story. And we think this is reality. We go to our churches and we think this is reality. It's it feels and looks really real. And the truth of the matter is, it's fantasy. And it is very difficult to accept. I'm the very first one to admit. Uh, because it takes mental power to turn around and say, this is lie, and I, want, I don't want to submit myself under that kind of power because it controls my life. 
I want to get out of, out of that. I want to know the truth as best as I can. Obviously, where, once again, the best means to do so is right here in your hands. So you have to expose your mind with biblical truth and do it every day. This is the best way how you can do it. But once you fill your mind with biblical truths, you also want to know the kind of world you live in. Right? Because you are ministering to people who are equally deceived. So you want to pull them out. See what I'm doing here? I'm trying to pull you out of that kind of fantasy world. Because I am energized by the things I read in the Bible because truth is so important to me. Because Jesus is called the truth. I want to convey that value to as many people as I can, trying to pull them out. Because, and that is called discipleship, right? We have a totally wrong understanding of God. And discipleship means he changes our thinking from one day to the next to correct our wrong understanding of who God is up to well, the point of death. We will never get to the point where we truly understand God, but at least we understand him good enough in Jesus Christ. But once we do understand God more and more as he truly is, we ought to understand ourselves better. And then we understand other people around us better. Right? And one aspect of that re uh, realization is that we are all deceived in some ways. We all accept lies. And if you build your life on lies, this is like sand, right? The storms come, if the waters come, our house may collapse. So I want you to, to be equipped so that we put our house, which is our life, on the rock. Well, the rock is Jesus Christ, but there's more to it. Right? He wants to tell you what really, what life really is. Because the devil is a liar, the father of lies. And he's destroying you. Right? That's his ob objective. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy your life. Mess up your life in as many ways as he possibly can. And this is how he does it. This is exactly how he does it. And this is a very effective method. Because you don't know it. Now you know a little bit more. So what is the recipe? Well, I already told you. Read the Bible. Immerse yourself in, in the Bible. Come to the church. Listen to the sermons and so on and so forth. Put what you learn about the Christian faith into practice. And then if you feel led. Now I'm not saying this is mandatory. Mandatory is this here. This is mandatory. Yeah. The other one is optional. But I believe it will help you. Help you in your life, help you in your Christian walk, and so on and so forth. If you also at least concern yourself a little bit about the other version of history. Because I said, one interlinks with the other. If your understanding of history is messed up, your theology will never improve to the point it should and vice versa. So they are, they are inter uh, intimately interlinked. And ultimately, if you are deceived, you know, there are many 
I would say well-meaning Christians, well-meaning Christians who support that kind of system, state church system. And they shouldn't. Right? And I think there are many, many more well-meaning Christians who think this is what we need to do as Christians. Whereas they support the movement which is set up to counter the true Christian faith. So where can you start understanding the other side of the story? Well, start with my book if you like to, but there are others. I can, I can give you some suggestions if you like to. I'm not doing it now, but I can give you some suggestions of books you might want to read. Now, here is what will happen the moment you start reading these books. And as I said this to Ronald tonight. Uh, perhaps you remember what I said. I even showed you a, a specific passage, <laughs> beginning of the third chapter. The moment you start reading that, you, f you think everything is upside down. And sometimes, and that was a sensation I experienced. Sometimes everything becomes like you are on, on high sea. There's nothing solid below your feet anymore. Because you were lied to for so many years. And all of a sudden you see a whole different reality. That you think, what is, what is truly real? Is this real, what I believed for so long? Or is this real? And you, you, it, it, your head starts spinning. <laughs> right? Because it's real. The matter of the fact is, it's night and day. That's the difference. Like lie, night, and truth, day. I'm coming to an end. I think I made my, my point pretty clear already. So, but it's, it's very liberating at the very same time. Because all of a sudden you realize, well, I was caught in that kind of fantasy world. And it was a fantasy world. It was nothing was real over here. And all of a sudden, I'm liberated to actually understand life much better. Now, not perfect. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you understand it perfect. I'm still learning. Right? But I live very differently from most people around me. Very, very, very differently. Well, I'm not saying you should, you should do this. And I already mentioned it as an example. But I threw out the TV many years ago. Because the TV is just the means of feeding me lies every day. And I believe these lies, and, and they are very convincing. Because I see the pictures, and I hear the commentaries, and whatever. The moment I threw out the TV, it was very liberating. I can assure you. I'm not missing it one bit. And I, I have all of a sudden, I, I use YouTube once in a while. Okay, I have internet. So I'm not totally disconnected. <laughs> okay, I'm not saying that. I'm not living a herm uh, like a hermit, not at all. And sometimes yeah, it's interesting to know what happens in France right now with that election. I, I try to follow that too. So I'm not saying I'm totally disconnected, but I have time on my hands which I didn't have before. In order for me to read very good books, and this is the best book, but I read a lot of books. <laughs> I have a library of I don't know how many thousand books. Sadly, they are all in storage in Germany, since we live in the States. But 
I read a lot of books. And they tremendously help me, and the right kind of books. Now, sometimes I read some heretical, but I know they are heretical. And I know where they are off. Just to prepare myself, because I am put into situations where I have to defend the, the faith, and I have to know the other side better than the person uh, propagating that other side. So, I, yes, I do that too. But I read a lot of good books. And my life has changed radically. And I'm standing here. It's, it's one of the things which has happened because of my, my life experiences over the last 25, 30 years. And I hope I can help you. Now, I just give you more or less the motivation, <laughs> okay? You still have to follow through if you care to. But it will be very liberating and it will be it will be an experience where your life quality will increase exponentially. Now, having said that, you will also realize, and this is my very last point, that the moment you are understanding the other side of a the story, there are tons of other people who do not understand that. The moment you speak about it, they think, he's a nutcase. <laughs> he's totally off the wall. Right? They may, if you write a PhD thesis, they may write cast words into the margin of that and put in their videos and make your life miserable in some ways. But this is exactly what happens to every Christian. The moment we believe this, the moment we believe Jesus Christ is the truth, people out there think you are a nutcase. You are scum. Right? It's just the normal Christian life. And I just gave you another facet of what it means to be a Christian. You should be concerned about truth in whatever way it's presented to you. You should not buy the lie. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you have given us your words to read and to study and to know more about you. And indeed, the word of God is inerrant. It doesn't have any errors in it. It tells us the truth from the first page to the last. And all you require of us is to believe what you tell us about yourself. And this is what we want to do. Lord, we committed ourselves to you and that means that we believe what you said. And we want to communicate that gospel to others. And we want to follow you faithfully. Lord, you have opened our minds to accept truth and to get out of that prison of darkness, that prison of lies, Lord, which we have believed for so many years. Lord, ultimately, whatever we do, whatever we say, whatever we learn, should lead to that one point where we do things which are pleasing in your sight yes, so that you will be glorified in whatever we do so that you take shape in our thinking, in our life the way how we lead it so that other people can see you in us but that is the objective and we are so thankful to know that you will return we will see you face to face. Yes, 
and that is our our deepest hope in regards to this moment as well as for all eternity. I pray that you bless this church in a in a wonderful way and that they strive after you. Amen.